Y'all take your Bibles. We're going to turn to Jonah. What do you know about Jonah? What's Jonah about? He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. He wants to do what he wants to do, right? Aren't you glad none of us are like that? Aren't you glad we all have kids that aren't like that and grandkids? What else? What's Jonah about? So it's about not wanting to do what God wanted him to do. God judging Nineveh and then not, right? He just went the wrong way, right? We're going to talk about that. Preachers love Jonah because it's a simple story that you can outline pretty easily. God called. Jonah said no. God chased him, told him to go, and he said yes, and God moved. Seems like a pretty simple do what God wants you to do the first time or you'll do it a second time, right? But there's lots of intricacies in here. And I think sometimes the story gets lost in either discussions about it, which we'll talk about in a minute, or in even just looking at the story from a big picture kind of place. And we fail. In some ways, Jonah is one of the most applicable books in the Bible, personally. But in some ways, we don't get there because we like the bigness of the story so much. I mean, this is the kind of thing a Hollywood movie is about, right? I mean, you've got defiance and storms at sea. You've got fish eating other people. You've got fishes vomiting. You've got a terrifying message, redemption, repentance, and a pouting prophet at the end. It's a movie script. But in the movie script, if we're honest, we can see our own lives in the midst of it. What do we know about Jonah? Is he mentioned anywhere else in the Bible? In 2 Kings, right? Chapter 14, verse 25. I know you had that just right there, Miss Joan, but say, Oh, you read it today. 2 Kings 14, 25. But it doesn't tell us much there. It just tells us that Jonah was the son of Amittai and that he was from this town of Gath-hefer, which is Galilee area. It does kind of give us a time frame that it was somewhere around, around the time of the rule of Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. Okay, it, it would have been, if we take it at that time, it would have been right before the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. Anybody know what one of the largest cities in Assyria was? Nineveh. Right? So you have this story of Jonah, which we don't know much about Jonah at all. There are all these kind of opinions about him and what he did and discussions about historicity and whether it happened or didn't happen and was it a big fish or a whale or what was it. And here's my answers to all of that. First of all, the Bible says it happened, so I believe it happened. Okay? If I have to explain everything in the Bible scientifically, I can't. Primarily, Jesus rising from the dead. And so if you're going to accept Jesus rising from the dead, that's pretty miraculous. I don't have a problem 
believing other miraculous things. Okay? Now, there are people that try to prove all that, and I read a, a story about a pastor who went in depth to try and find it, and there was supposedly a story in the 1800s about somebody getting thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish and getting out a day later, and there's no real good evidence for that. And He said, when I got to the end of it, I found that a large sperm whale could ingest a human being. God would still have to keep him alive, but he could keep him whole for two or three days. before He, in- he said, all I came to at the end was... If Jonah was swallowed by a big fish or a whale, we'll talk about that in a second. If he was swallowed by that, God would have to protect him in the midst of it. And I already believed God protected him in the midst of it. So the only thing I proved was that I had to believe that God could protect him. And I do. So he said, I wasted all that effort. He didn't use the word wasted. He just said that I got back to where I started from. People get in the discussion, was it a whale or a big fish? Well, it couldn't have been a whale. That's what people say. Why? Why why do they say it couldn't have been a whale? It says it's a big fish, isn't it, right? Wouldn't a whale a big fish? It's a mammal, right? Because since we have classified it as a mammal. Can I just say something? They didn't know the word mammal. What did you expect them to write? It looks like a fish, but it belongs to the family, the species that is of a mammal, because it feeds its young through the mother's milk. But they don't. I believe the Bible is truthful in everything it says. I believe that it could have been a really large fish, or it could have been what we call a whale. I don't have a problem either way. The point is not the fish or the whale, and people get stuck on that. The point is the other stuff. In fact, they asked a bunch of fifth graders one time in Sunday school, what's the book of Jonah about? And they said it's about a whale. Well, it's really not. The whale is pretty insignificant in amount of space that is there. Now, it's miraculous and important, but it's insignificant in the amount of space that is there. Much more space is given to the call and the rejection of the call. Much more space is given to Jonah's prayer in the midst of distress much more space is given to Nineveh's response and to, jo- uh, to Jonah not liking it than it is to the whale. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. I- I'll tell you this. We're, gonna, we're going to, to use an illusion from Jonah. We are going to fly through this like a speedboat. All right? I, it's taken me eight weeks to do series on Jonah before. We're going to do them in two weeks. All right? So we're not going to hit everything, but we're going to try to hit what we need to hit. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. So far, so good, right? Sounds like most books we start with. Word of the Lord came to Jonah. To Jonah, nobody else. This is Jonah's specific call. Get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because their wickedness has confronted me. Okay? A couple of things that we want to talk about. First of all, it's a personal call. It is a call to Jonah. It wasn't to Amos. It wasn't to Haggai. It wasn't to Obadiah. It was to Jonah. People get caught up sometimes in whether or not we have a specific call from the Lord. Now, we expect preachers to have a specific call to the Lord. Whenever I interviewed with this church, uh, that committee sat around and they asked me, Miss Teresa was on that committee. Alan was on that committee. Steve was on that committee. They wanted to know, when were you called to ministry? What was that call? And I, 
told them about my experience in Ridgecrest, North Carolina, when I was called, after I was saved. And they, you want preachers to have a call. But what about just, well, not preachers? Here's the truth. None of us are excused from the call because there is a general call, right? When the general call of the Lord comes from Jesus at the end of his time when he says, you are to go into all the world making disciples, teaching them what I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you while you do that. And be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's a general call. God's plan from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Revelation that says, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. God's plan is to create a people for Himself that will be a witness to the world that will draw other people to Him. His purpose is people. And we are all called to be a part of that. Now, each of us have individual calls in the midst of that. And the truth is, you can partly determine your call by finding out where you are and where God's leading you. God has called you in your place in life to do the general call in your specific setting. Now, there are times, and I believe in every person's life there are times, when God will give you a new direction or a new specification from the general plan. And the question is whether or not you'll obey that. It was a personal call to Jonah. And it was a pointed call, right? Specific. What was he to do? Go to Nineveh and do what? Preach. What was he supposed to preach? Judgment. God's coming in judgment. Repent or die. Now, let's talk about Nineveh for a minute. Now, we know Jonah's answer, right? Jonah says, well, he doesn't say no. He just shows it, right? Why didn't Jonah want to go? He didn't like him. But when you look at that message, Charles, that's a pretty good message to give somebody you don't like, right? Hey, God's about to destroy you. What does he preach when he gets there? Do anybody remember what he preaches? When he walks around the street, what does he say? Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's a pretty good message if you don't like somebody, right? So he didn't like them. What do we find out in chapter 4 he was afraid of? They would repent. And God would save them. Jonah was an isolationist. He believed that God's word was for God's people and it didn't need to go past that. He believed in hunkering down and that God only wanted certain people around. If Jonah was in Congress in the United States of America, he would want a 50-foot wall around every border of the United States. Nobody in, nobody out. We don't like those people, they don't like us. There's no need for us to interact with them or go there. And besides God, we find out in chapter 4, he says to God, we'll talk about this more next week, but he says to God, I knew that if they repented, you would relent. So what does Jonah do? God gives him a pointed, personal call, and Jonah does what? He goes the other way. Goes down, gets on a boat to Tarshish. Now just so in case you don't know, Nineveh, 
Tarshish, where Jonah was. There is absolute, it's like saying we're going to go to Knoxville by way of Memphis. That didn't make sense, right? That's not what you do. You don't drive to St. Louis to get to Atlanta unless you are really directionally challenged. Jonah knew what he was doing, right? It says here, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now, you realize how ridiculous that statement is, don't you? Jonah was convinced he could run away from God. Aren't you glad we never think that we can get away with stuff? He went down to Joppa, found a ship, he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord's presence. Now, we have to remember that they thought in that time that if a God was a God of a land, that's where he lived and he didn't go other places. Now, Yahweh, God, King of kings, Lord of lords, Father, Father of Jesus, our Savior, he said over and over again, I'm not the God of this land, I am the God of all lands. But Jonah's still in his mind is thinking, I can get away. And not only can I get away to Tarshish, but the place they were most scared of in the world was the ocean or the sea. Because they didn't know how to control it. The truth is, we still don't. Anybody been out on the open sea in anything but a cruise ship lately? Anybody want to? You know, there, there was a movie that came out a few years ago. I didn't see it. I don't watch lots of horror movies, but... Lots of horror movies, my guess is, wouldn't scare me a whole lot because I really, I don't get bothered by creepy guys in masks, okay? Now, he was coming at me, I guess, with a weapon, I might. But there was one called Open Water. It was about a couple that ends up in a rowboat, basically, by themselves, out on the open ocean. That's frightening to me. There's no control there, right? Jonah thought, I can get out there. God won't be able to get to me. Verse 4. The Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. Now think about that. So you're on the open sea. There's a storm and the winds are so bad the ship's about to fall apart. There are very few places in life I would rather be less than there. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. You, you get the scene that they're on the deck to their own personal gods yelling, Save us! Save us! They threw the ship's cargo in the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, where's Jonah? He's as far as he can get down in the boat. Sleeping away. Now in the New Testament, there's a guy sleeping in the middle of a storm, right? But it's two completely different reasons. Jesus isn't responsible for the storm. Jonah is not responsible in that he caused it. By doing it, he is responsible in that his, his sin, the reason that God sent it. You know what I think is interesting about Jonah here? We're going to have a little... A little open and honest kind of communication here. You ever do something you know you're not supposed to do or you don't do something you know you're supposed to do and you get home and you try to go to bed and you just can't? Anybody ever slept uneasily because of something you've done? I have. 
And Jonah is sound asleep. You get the impression, and I think it's intentional, that he didn't even really care about what was going on. He just wanted to get away. The captain of the ship comes down, and what does he say? What are you doing? Get up on deck. We're crying out to our God. Maybe yours is the God that'll work. This is like, we've tried every other God. At least let's try yours. And he gets up on deck, and he says, Hey, it's my fault, guys. And I love it. They go, what? what? Why didn't you tell us? What are you doing? And they say, what, do we should, what should we do? What does Jonah say? What does Jonah say when they say, what do we do? Throw me overboard. And here's one of those lines that just is interesting to me. You wonder why writers put these things in. I think I know here. but Verse 12, he answered, pick me up, throw me into the sea so it may quiet down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Nevertheless, verse 13, nevertheless. The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not because the sea was raging against them more and more. You know what that means? That means they didn't want to throw him overboard. Why didn't they want to throw him overboard? Apparently they cared more about Jonah than Jonah cared about the people that God had called him to. I think that contrast is there on purpose. Right? They're doing everything they can to save a man who was running away from doing the very thing God called him to do to save a city. And these aren't God-fearing men, right? I mean, they're calling out to various gods out there, but the godless men of that boat cared more about the prophet than the prophet cared about God's mission. Aren't you glad today that Christians aren't ever accused of being hateful or not caring about people? That's not true, is it? You know, sometimes people accuse us of things that aren't true, but there are moments and cases when it is apparent that we really don't, at least our actions seem to indicate, we really don't care about people. Jonah's there. They try all they can. And finally, what do they do? Toss him overboard. With the cargo, they throw him overboard. Now notice... What they do before that, though, they pray to Yahweh, right? Please, Yahweh, spare us. We have tried to save him, but this seems to be the only thing that will work. So what they're basically saying is, it is because of you that we are throwing him into the ocean, so do not harm us for throwing him into the ocean. And it says that they then made an offering to Yahweh once the storm settled down. Because they recognize the power of God. Then we have the appearance of whatever it is. But whatever it is, the fish or the whale, is not the subject of the sentence that follows the last verse in chapter 1. Somebody got that open. What's the subject? Who's doing the action in the last verse of chapter 1? The Lord. What is the Lord doing? He's prepared a fish. You know what I think is kind of cool about that? The, the word there means prepare, get ready. I don't think that means just that he had a fish that was stationed where he needed him. I think it means that God had been preparing this particular fish. 
for this particular task because he knew it was coming. And I think that means for a long time, not in the moment, oh, Jonah's overboard, I've got to find a fish. Well, there's one right there. Let me get him. God had been preparing this fish for this moment. Here's what I think is interesting about that, okay? We're going to go to chapter 2 in a minute. Chapter 2 is one of my favorite chapters in this four-chapter book. I've got, I got four chapters that I really love in this book, okay? There are only four chapters, so I like them all. Most of the time, the impression is given that God is angry at Jonah... And so he sends a storm to make him get thrown overboard and then forces him to be eaten by a fish. And I think that's a wrong perception of what's going on here. I think God cares so much about Jonah, he's not going to let him make this mistake. And God cares so much about the people of Nineveh that he wants his message delivered. And God cares so much about you and me and what we would read about this and learn about this in years to come. He wasn't going to let this get away. And in fact, God didn't have to. If God was really mad at Jonah, he didn't need to send a fish. Right? What would have happened to Jonah in the open sea? We would not have Jonah. It would have been a... If it was in the Bible, it would have been a footnote over in 2 Kings. You know the prophet that tried to run away from God and drowned after the shipwreck. But God, the fish God used as a rescue vessel. Now, you and I could say, well, we could have waited until like today, because submarines would be a little better than... Anybody ever caught fish, gone fishing? Anybody ever gone fishing? Anybody ever gutted a fish? Well, that's fun work, isn't it? Smells good. Looks good. Slippery. Imagine being inside of that. It's bad when it's a little bitty old fish there and you're gutting it and stuff spilling out everywhere. Imagine being, you know, they cut it open, you're in there. All right? It's just nasty. Somebody in the four o'clock said probably felt, smelled like fish. I said, kind of like driving by Captain D's, right? Probably not, because they didn't fry the fish back then, I don't think. God could have let him go. But it says he ordained, prepared, got ready a fish for the job he was going to do. Now, this is where some people could jump off and really go, don't you think if God's going to prepare a fish, he'll prepare you? But that's not the point of the fish. The point of the fish is, God wasn't done with Jonah. Here's what I love, chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from inside the fish. So this prayer comes from inside the fish. But this is what I want you to realize. The prayer is from inside the fish, but it's not necessarily about being inside the fish. Okay? We'll read it. And you tell me just reading this prayer what you think it's about. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. What's, what's Sheol? Yeah, it's the depths, the grave. It can mean, basically, Gehenna, hell, um, the depths of the earth, okay? All those kind of places. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yah, I will look once more towards your holy temple. 
The waters engulfed me up to my neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth with its prison bars closed behind me forever. But you raised my life from the pits, Lord my God. My life was fading away. I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. So the prayer is from inside the fish. But what is the prayer about? It's being saved from what? What is the imagery there? Death. Physically, what is the imagery? It is death. It is separated from God. What is, the, what is he describing physically that happened to him? He's describing his drowning. Right? He's describing being in the sea. I mean, look at it. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. Your breakers, your billows, the waves swept over me. The waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. It is a graphic description of drowning. So here's the question. If he cries out in drowning and is rescued from drowning, what rescues him from drowning? The Lord does through a fish. You don't often hear it described that the fish was the salvation of Jonah. But guess what the fish was? The salvation of Jonah. It was his own personal submarine. Right? Because the guess is he was out in the middle of the sea. What happens at the end of this chapter? Where does he end up? On dry land. So Jonah's drowning. I mean, you've got a vivid picture. Water is engulfing. The waves are breaking over him. The water's up to his neck. He's going into the watery depths. And suddenly, this fish saves him. Takes him on a taxi ride. Spits him out on dry land. It's not just that the Jonah got in the belly of the fish and the fish had indigestion for three days and decided... The most miraculous part of this is not a fish swallowing Jonah. It's that the fish then drove Jonah where he needed to go. And it shows the dogged pursuit of the Lord of his people. Now, this isn't the only time God would have used an animal, right? When else did God use an animal? The donkey spoke, right? The donkey gets kind of sassy. Why do you keep hitting me? Don't you see the angel of the Lord standing there? If I would have gone ahead, we'd all be dead. We read that story to Eli the other night. He thought it was the funniest thing he's ever read. And here's the truth. It is pretty funny. You ever been around a donkey? The donkey turned around and said, why do you keep hitting me? It may not be funny to you at the moment because you might be, you know, needing some medical attention. But afterwards, it would be, you're not going to believe it. The donkey talked to me. And what are your friends going to think? You're nuts. That's what your friends are going to think. We've got a special room for you somewhere. Here's the thing that's amazing to me about the story of Jonah. Jonah makes a calculated, continuous decision to run away from the Lord. He thinks it out. It is premeditated. It's not a rash decision. Now, I'm not saying he took years to plan it out. 
But he knew what he was doing and he knew where he was going. He gets on the boat. He goes to the bottom of the boat. He gets to the very bottom of the boat. And he goes to sleep and he says, I'm going wherever you're going. And God's not going to find me. And yet God... Now, first of all, the ridiculous nature of God's not going to find me. If I go to the highest heavens, you are there. If I go to the deepest depths... You are there. If I go to the farthest ends of the earth, you are there. He knows where we are. He knows everything about us. And to think otherwise is ridiculous. But what amazes me is that God just kind of looks at him and says, you're still going to go. And he didn't give up on him. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from a guy named C.S. Lewis. You know C.S. Lewis, right? Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, Mere Christianity, Out of Silent Planet, all this great writing. One of the, considered one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, Christian or non-Christian. C.S. Lewis was, I did my senior term paper on him, was a staunch atheist, did not believe in the Lord, ran away from him for years. And his friend, a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote a book called The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, kept talking to him about the Lord. And one night, C.S. Lewis gave in. And that's the phrase he used. And he said, one, he wrote in a book, and I love this. He said, the amazing thing about God is not that he would take a sinner back who comes to him on his knees, crawling to the altar, telling the Lord how sorry he is. The amazing thing about God is that he would take a guy like me who came into his presence, kicking and screaming all the way. Jonah was kicking and screaming all the way. And here's the truth. At the end of the book, we find out he really didn't learn his lesson. But God still loved him and cared about him and cared about people of Nineveh. And used him in a mighty way. We talked about this last week. Jeremiah, faithful to the Lord for 40 years, has no converts. Jonah reluctantly goes into a community and yells something. And they all change their ways. It's encouraging to me that God is determined to go after his people. He pursues us. It's not just Jonah. Where else in the Bible do we see that? Where God is adamantly pursuing his people, not letting them go. Where do we see that? What's that? In the Exodus, right? They, they kept calling out, calling out, and God says, I'm going to take them out. Yeah, I've been reading that and going through the one-year Bible. It's amazing to me how reluctant God, the leadership is, and God just keeps saying, we're going. We're getting them out. It's going to take a while. We're getting them out. And Moses, I don't want to do it. Tell Aaron to do it. And Aaron, being reluctant about it, you know, and they, God says, I'm going to do it. And he takes them and he takes the people out because he loved them and he cared for them. And not because of who they were, just because he did. Hosea, right? We're going to study Hosea sometime. I keep saying that. We're, I'm almost six years into pastoring here and we haven't studied Hosea yet, but we will. Okay. Hosea got calls and says, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. And Hosea does. And the prostitute leaves and God says, go buy her back. And the prostitute leaves and God says, go take her back. And the point is, that's my people. And I love them just like you are supposed to love her. God is dogged in his pursuit of his people. And we just simply have to give in and let him be who he intends to be. I'm also challenged by Jonah because I think how many times in my life have I dug my heels in, consciously or unconsciously, and said to the Lord, I don't think that's what you intend to do. In fact, a good question to ask is, 
what if the if the Lord what would it take for the Lord to ask you to do something for you to say no? Now all of us in here go, oh, oh, I, no, it'd be foolish to say that. But I mean, what relationship would it be that you needed to reconcile, or what letter would it be that you needed to write, or what phone call would it be that you needed to make, or what ministry would it mean that you needed to be a part of, or what ministry would it mean that you needed to give up, or what? What would it mean for you to say no? One writer says that every one of us has a little bit of Jonah inside of us. Where we think we know what's right. And we think that God sometimes when he tells us new things to do. That God doesn't realize that's not how it's done. And we don't want to do what God intends for us to do. Were the Ninevites nice people? No, they were not. Do you remember in Amos when we talked about being drug away by hooks? Do you remember that? Who did that? The Assyrians. Where's Nineveh? In Assyria. Sometimes we, we're on Jonah pretty good, acting like we should have just gone to Assyria. But we're talking about a choice to walk into a city that was anti-Yahweh and declare that Yahweh was going to destroy them Probably at the cost of your own life. It'd be like walking into the palace of the leader of Iran and telling him that Yahweh was going to destroy his country. That's what it's like. How do you think Lord says to Charles, Charles, you're the guy. You're going to fly over to Tehran. You're just going to walk up to the capital. And you're going to start yelling 40 days from now, God's going to destroy this place. Don't even mention what would happen if you did that to the White House. Like in our own country. Right? What if you did it in Tehran? You know, yeah, it was nice knowing you, Charles. Right? That's what he was being asked to do. So it's not some little bitty thing he's being asked to do. Just go to the city and talk to him. It's not like they've been asking him to go on a summer mission trip here. His life was at stake. And yet God says, trust me, I know what the end is. It's not going to be that way. You've got to believe and trust me. And yet Jonah puts his foot down and says, no. Now I will say this about Jonah. God pursued him. He said no. But here's what I love about Jonah, at least in chapter 2. Jonah is one of those good news, bad news, love-hate relationships. You know, in chapter 1, first part, we're like, man, I just don't like this guy. He's going away from what the Lord says. And then we're kind of, he's getting what he got. He has coming to him. In chapter 2, we're like, oh, look at him. Chapter 3, well, he's doing what the Lord says. In chapter 4, what happened to him? He's back to being the bad guy. All right? Here's what I love. In chapter 2, you know what he says? He says three words that are some of the hardest three words to say. It's my fault. Or, in a marriage relationship, I was wrong. Some of you choke thinking about it. Admitting that to your spouse. But he comes to the Lord and he says, it was me. It's my fault. I was wrong. But I had this hope that maybe you would save me. I looked towards the temple and said, one last time, Lord, I don't want to go. He threw up the ultimate Hail Mary pass. Not the Catholic Hail Mary, the Hail Mary pass. The ultimate 
cry of desperation. And God answered. So here's the question. Is there something in your life you're still running from the Lord on? Is there something from that you kind of think the Lord may be saying, but you've just kind of shut the idea out because I don't think He would want me to do that. But the more you think of it, you think it's probably of the Lord. And are you willing to obey no matter what? Let's pray.